0: This is intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Florida lawmakers have reached the midpoint of the two-month-long legislative session. Some of the more controversial bills are HB1, the public disorder or so-called riot bill, and HB1475, which would ban trans athletes from high school or college sports competitions. We'll take a closer look now. We'll take a closer look now at the bills that are making headlines and talk about what that means if they're passed into law. Well, joining me is Democratic political commentator Dick Bachelor. Dick, thanks for being with us. Thank
1: you very much. Appreciate it.
0: Also joined by Republican political analyst Frank Torres. Frank, thanks for joining us as well.
1: Great to be here.
0: This is a question I want to ask both of you. And uh, Frank, we're going to start with you. We're at the midpoint or just over the midpoint of the legislative session. What are you watching right now?
2: Well, I'm watching uh, all that. I don't want to go ahead and... Uh preview too far ahead about what we're talking about, but I'm going to be watching a lot of the things we're going to be hitting here in a couple of seconds. I'm also checking out how the, the session is operating in the backdrop of this pandemic recovery with every, with vaccinations going on, uh, statistics going up and down, and all the local counties also trying to implement their own measures to fight the pandemic. I think it's definitely a session unlike we've uh, we've seen uh, ever before, and there are a lot of things flying under the radar that we might not be aware of, which is uh, an especially good reason why we're talking about everything today.
0: Mm-hmm. Dick Batchelor. Aside from the bills making headlines, anything kind of piquing your interest at this point in the legislative session?
1: Yeah, I think overall, you know, the Senate has certainly asserted himself uh, in the budget process. The budget in the House and Senate are about two billion dollars apart. One's about ninety-seven. One's about ninety-five billion you got some differences, but I think overall it's the most radical legislature I have seen. Hmm. If you look at the public records law, they're passing all kind of legislation to keep public records from the public. They're passing legislation that will make it illegal to you, for you to give somebody a bottle of water who's standing in line uh, to vote. It's just really some radical uh, departure from what I would call strict constructionist Republicans. They've become really kind of radical Republicans. And last, I'll use the example on on um, they're basically going after Google and all Mm -hmm. the formats of basically say, hey, you were not good, you weren't nice, not nice to uh, then President uh, Trump when he (laughs) on January the sixth they initiated an insurrection. So they're just really going beyond what I would call a traditional conservative Republican, economic conservative Republican, traditional, strict constructionist, and they've gotten really radical, in my opinion.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the fine details. One uh, bill we're looking at closely, which is garnering a lot of headlines, is the bill combating public disorder. It's also known as the riot bill. What it does defines a riot, increases penalties for crimes committed during That kind of riot creates a process for state attorneys to challenge budget reductions to law enforcement, among other things. Um, So if this bill becomes law, there could be some implications for how it's enforced. I want to just play a little bit of sound, though. Here's Maxwell Frost. He's the National Organizing Director for March for Our Lives. Now, he says that Governor DeSantis himself was pointing out the relative calm of Florida's protests last summer. He says this bill is nothing more than an attack on the right to protest. And so it's
3: interesting because when it comes to defending his record, Florida is perfect. There's no looting. But when he wants to pass this bill, which they call an anti-riot bill, but let's be honest, it's an anti-protest bill. It's an anti-First Amendment bill, and it's meant to scare people from going out and speaking up. There's a mandatory minimum of six months. It expands standing your ground to the point where you can get killed um, for being in front of a business during a protest. And so there's a lot of different things that in this bill that are meant to criminalize and demonize protesting.
0: So that's Maxwell Frost with March for Our Lives uh, talking there about the difference between Governor Ron DeSantis and his explanation of how Florida responded to the nationwide protest, saying that things were pretty calm by and large and then uh, proposing this legislation, which was, of course, picked up by lawmakers. Let's hear a little more from Maxwell Frost, his concerns about this particular bill.
3: We already saw that we had hundreds of folks get arrested over the Black Lives Matter uprising here in Florida for almost doing nothing. I saw a young man get arrested for crossing the street, spent a night in jail. I got arrested for walking to my car, I spent a night in jail. So these laws are already in place that criminalize protesting. What this is, is it's taking it a step further.
0: As a counterpoint to that, here's State Representative Randy Fine. He's a Republican from Melbourne Beach. He's a co-sponsor of the bill. And here's why he says it's an important and needed piece of legislation.
2: Political violence um, in support of a cause is never acceptable. And this bill protects the rights of people
0: to exercise their First Amendment and protects them from those who would choose to loot or act in otherwise violent ways. And Representative Fine also rejects the argument that this bill is a crackdown on free speech.
2: I would encourage them to read the bill. Uh, There's nothing in the bill that clamps down free speech, except in in case quite the opposite. Um, We are coming
0: down hard on, quote, unquote, mostly peaceful protesters, which they like to call themselves, in order to protect the actual peaceful protesters. Um, No one wants to
2: take that right away in the legislature. We can't. It's in the First Amendment. But no one has the right to be violent.
0: All right. So um, quite a bit to unpack there. Uh, Frank Torres, what sort of do you hear Hearing both sides of that argument. First, Maxwell Frost from March for Our Lives saying this is essentially clamping down on free speech, and then Representative Randy Fine saying that is absolutely not the case. Um, how do those two readings of this bill stack up in your mind?
2: Well, I think they're both kicking this legislation and politicizing it to an even higher degree. I mean, the truth is goodness 9 out of 10 heck 9.5 out of 10 protests are perfectly peaceful and they show up they they know the drill Uh, they you know they march they uh, they get their message out and they go home but unfortunately there's that small element which is been unable to be controlled by by certain groups really on both sides that just don't know how to behave and it poses a significant um risk to to our law enforcement and certain businesses now most protests are nonviolent, and if those, you know, people participating in those protests protests remain nonviolent, then they don't have anything to worry about. But I certainly don't see anything wrong with, uh, with taking the extra measures to protect businesses and, and people in the community. But really, I think it's just a, a bill that in previous years would have been mostly for show, um, but because of the, the environment we're in these days with all the protests that have taken place, over the last few years, has just sort of seen the volume turned all the way up on it.
0: On the other side of that, Dick Bachelor, one of the concerns we are hearing from opponents is that this bill, particularly, will be or could be used to directly target communities of colour. So there's more than just clamp down on free speech, which opponents say this bill does. They're also saying this would disproportionately affect communities of colour. Uh, your thoughts on that?
1: First of all, I think Representative Fine should take a little bit of time off and read the Constitution. What he said was just totally in, uh, just not right. In fact, why have the bill? There are a lot of provisions in this bill that are already against the law. Law enforcement has the tools to enforce it. I'm not in favor of riots. We didn't have any riots in Florida. We had some protests in Florida that were by large margin very peaceful. What this is about is the optics for presidential election Governor DeSantis. He's taken issues like going after the social media platforms and pushing back on free speech. He's, he's pretending there was some right in the state of Florida in passing this kind of legislation. And this is all about the optics for him running for president you know, two years, three years down the road is what this this legislation is about. And what I would love to see as a final note, I'd love to see someone take this legislation superimposed on January the 6th and the res- insurrection of the Capitol to see how many of the Proud Boys would be so, not the Proud Boys now, because they all be locked up, but for more serious crimes than they're going to be charged with. So you've got to be very careful. Again, I, I, to Frank's point, I don't have a problem having laws that basically allow people, and I actually encourage people to protest, First Amendment right to be exercised, but Obviously, it has to be peaceful. You can't destroy poverty. No one's in favor of destroy property. And by the way, no one's in favor, I know, was a Democratic Party, of defunding the police, which is another theme this is about. Democrats are not in support of defunding the police. Now, we would like to redirect some of the money for our intervention, juvenile diversion programs, things like that. But no one's in, in favor of defunding. But those are the kind of call words. those are the dog whistles you're hearing come in from DeSantis because it's all about optics for the presidential
0: run in three years. Still to come, more on a bill that opponents have criticised as discriminatory against trans athletes, plus what else you should be paying attention to this legislative session. Intersection is back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Let's get back to our conversation with political commentators Dick Batchelor and Frank Torres about the midpoint of the 2021 legislative session. Let's move on though um, and talk about another fairly controversial piece of legislation This is the bill around women in sports. I'm just wondering uh, what the legality of this bill is and how it may play out, what the ramifications, if it actually passes. Dick Batchelor, have you taken a closer look at this bill and what are your thoughts on it?
1: Only what I've read, to be candid about it, it it looks like it's a resolution to a problem that doesn't really exist. But again, it's the the photo-op opportunity here to basically take an issue that really resonates with the extreme right wing and basically focus on sports and transgenders participating in sports. There's an issue there. I don't know how to resolve that issue, uh, but I, I think it's a, it's not a major issue. So, But I do understand why they're filing the legislation to garner some debate around this and kind of throwing red meat to the extreme right of the Republican Party. But I, I don't. It's almost like a solution in search of a problem.
0: And, and we're talking uh, just to remind our listeners uh, about the Women in Sports Bill HB fourteen seventy five, which would require anyone participating in girls and women's sports at the K through twelve and college level to be biologically female. Frank Torres, uh, is there kind of more of a national audience for this this piece of legislation? Do you think? Uh, and and how would you see it playing out if it actually makes it all the way through and gets to the governor's desk?
2: I think mean, it's a complete waste of time. I, I, I agree with Dick. It's a photo. It's photo op legislation, and you know, there's normally a fair amount of photo op legislation uh, at every session. But I mean, we've got a lot going on right now, and I just think there's just so many areas involving the environment, involving economic development, uh, and, and as well as other areas of government, including education. And we're worried about a you know a transgender sports bill having you know have to do with with this particular subject uh, in the middle of one of the most important sessions that we're having at some time. And I think it's just, it's one of these, these bills that when I see taking up time during hearings, you know, I just want to roll my eyes because there's just so many other better things we can be working on. Well, Dick knows from firsthand, firsthand experience that this is a race against the clock, these legislative sessions. Mm-hmm. And to just see this, you know, taking up a bunch of time where there's just so much going on is particularly frustrating.
0: If you're just joining us, we are speaking with political commentators Frank Torres and Dick Batchelor, taking a look at what legislation is on the table midway through the 2021 legislative session. Let's take a look now at HB 161 and SB 544. These are uh, bills that have been proposed by... Democrats in Tallahassee, they would revise the composition of judicial nominating commissions. So currently, the governor appoints nine members to each of the 26 uh, JNCs. Four, Three of those members are from a list recommended by the Florida Bar. Under this legislation, though, the governor would only appoint three members to each nine-member nominating commission. Three others would be appointed by the Florida Bar. Then six members of each JNC panel would select the remaining three members. So the bills also provide that no more than five members of each commission be of the same political Party. Um, so, just kind of taking a closer look at that, um, I'm wondering, you know, what the ramifications may be of this uh, of of this bill, sort of changing the way those judicial nominating commissions are formulated and how they operate, and what that means for the courts. Um, Frank Torres, your thoughts on this?
2: Well, I think any bill that any bill that takes away power from a governor is going to, you know, such an uphill climb. Well, he's got a friendly legislature, and I think that's the situation that we have here. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's been a lot of controversy involving um, judicial nominees and, and those who are, have been selected uh, to fill these uh, these spots on the bench around the state. And, you know, and I think if there is one – I don't think this legislation is going to be um, too relevant, and, you know, given the current, current climate in, in Tallahassee. But I think it is good, a, a very good thing. That we're, uh, we're paying attention to the issue of judges and, and judicial nominations because it's really important. And mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, decisions are made, um, you know, in Tallahassee and around the state where they've already happened, and it wasn't even on our radar. A lot of you know, a lot of your casual voters, a lot of your regular residents, living living every day, um, you know, just living their lives every day, are are unfortunately very blind when it comes to the issues of judges and uh, how they're selected, and even some of the judicial elections when you, um, when you go further down the ballot. So, I mean, I think the legislation will ultimately be uh, unaffect- ineffective, and, uh, but it is a good thing that we're talking about it, uh, if anything, just to educate people more on how the process works.
0: Mm-hmm. Dick Bachelor, is this an attempt by Democrats to keep DeSantis from loading up the courts with nominees that are friendly to his policies? Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but Let, let me, uh, as a member of the legislature way back when we mm-hmm. did what we call the modified Missouri plan for a judicial selection of judges and where you basically have a judicial nominating commission that's balanced and you would take names and advance them to the governor's consideration. But the Florida bar had a number of seats as you've alluded to and you try to depolitify because we had problems with we had two or three Supreme Court justices in Florida. They were they were I think Caplan went to jail. There was a lot of uh, corruption amongst the judiciary. So the thought was, if we did a, a judicial nominating process where you nominate judges, it would take away some. Of course, circuit judges and county judges still run, mm-hmm. but the appellate level, well, you don't. There's an appointment process up to the Supreme Court. But the, the bar, the Republicans frankly do not want the bar to have. The influence on the nominating commission—it is extremely political. And if you look at the Supreme Court, this is an observation, not a criticism. It's just what it is. Mm-hmm. Supreme Court in Florida is extremely conservative. The uh, governor's appointed extremely conservative, and I would argue some not very qualified to be on the circuit level of the bench. But uh, any kind of legislation that would restrict the governor's hand so he can't further influence from his political philosophy regarding the selection of judges won't pass and what if it did it would be the first thing vetoed it's just not going to happen but uh but again it it, it is political obviously because you're trying to insulate politics and judicial selection but it is politicized at this point so uh but no legislation is going to pass hmm. or, or to be vetoed it were to be passed
0: so as far as legislative sessions go uh oftentimes we've find ourselves discussing constitutional amendments. Um, This year, no different. There are a few things up for consideration here. Uh, HJR 61, SJR 1238, both of these would increase the percentage of elective votes required to pass a constitutional amendment or revision from 60% to 66 and two-thirds of a percent. And would also allow an amendment to or revision to the state constitution to be repealed by the same percentage of electors that was required at the time of passage of such amendment or revision. Now, we've seen constitutional amendments passed and then the implementation of those delayed and delayed. So, uh, you know, there's always going to be controversy around, first of all, these amendments making it through and then how they're implemented. But I wanted to talk to you both about what the impact of these may be if they're passed. Now, Dick Batchelor, as we saw in the presidential election uh, elections these days seem to be extremely close. With this resolution, uh, you know, uh, amping up or, or lifting the bar on the percentage of, of electors needed to, to bring about a constitutional amendment, how do you see that affecting things moving forward?
1: Look at the overarching issue. It's another attempt by the radical legislature to restrict people's ability to have unfettered access to amend their own constitution. That's what it's about. It used to be 50 percent plus one vote. Then they move it to 60 percent. Now they want to move it to 66 percent because, God forbid, the legislature should allow the public to have a clear voice by amending their own constitution. That's all it's about. You know, they had a delay on – uh, on, on the reinstatement of rights for former prisoners, right? And now they're talking about maybe ch- a change in the minimum wage requirements, uh, uh, it, which is a conflict with the Constitutional Amendment passed. The, the legislature, this Republican legislature, does not like the public to have unfettered access to petition their own government. So they're making it hard. In fact, it was one provision that say it had to pass twice. Hmm. You had to pass the Constitutional Amendment once, then you had to pass it again to be sure we got it right. So my suggestion would be, okay, you have to get elected twice. You get <laughs> elected in November, and, uh, and then I think you need to run again in December because we might have gotten it wrong the first time around. It, it's it's from a from a, a uh, philosophical standpoint, it's very onerous. Mm. It's a very offensive because that's all they're trying to do is make it hard for you to petition. In fact, the other thing the John Morgan Amendment basically says you cannot give more than three thousand dollars to advance a constitutional amendment. Well what is that about? That's about taking away funding for people to secure the signatures, which is very expensive, to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot. Mm. It's all it's about. It's about trying to keep God forbid the public should have the right to petition a government. That's what it's all about. It is radical.
0: Well, I just wanted to sort of close out by asking, you alluded to this at the top of our conversation, Frank, there are are a lot of things that maybe you're not getting the headlines but are critical to pay attention to. I wonder if there's just a couple of pieces of of legislation or things that you think it's particularly important to be be, uh, keeping your eye on right at this point in time, whether it pertains to how uh, we get out of this pandemic or other economic issues that are pressing at this point in time.
2: You know, I'm going to go... It's a tough ask of an audience because it's just so wonky, but I'm going to go budget line items. I think that there have been a lot of, you know, I think the governor's veto pen is going to be especially powerful this year. And, and what's getting approved for our, for our funds of here in Tallahassee is more important than ever, not only in addition to pandemic relief and making sure that, you know, we're providing enough aid to the sectors that need it, but also on more local issues for central Florida, like pedestrian safety and, you know, road safety. A lot of times, we're seeing I mean, those items get uh, X'd out with little thought given to them. But now we're just seeing so much you know, so much activity and so many unfortunate events in our community that listeners really should be paying attention on how we're spending our dollars and what projects are making it through and what projects aren't making it through, especially this year with things are so tough.
0: Dick Batchelor, what do you think people need to be paying extra attention to besides the headline uh, grabbing bills?
1: I think uh, getting back to some of the philosophy that's been reflected, the one thing that's uh, unsettling, I think, to a lot of people, is the preemption of local decision-making by the legislature. Uh, you know, you can't do masking regulations. You can't pass environmental standards that, that uh, are more uh, substantial than the state has, has set up. So the whole Effort I, uh, recognizing that cities and counties are creation of the legislature. I understand that, but local government, uh, I think it was Jefferson said, the government closest to the people is the most effective government and the most responsive government. Why would the legislature now want to preempt local decision making by the mayors and cities, the city council members, and the county commissioners? So, to me, that's kind of under the radar right now because there's so many things going on. And uh, to borrow, uh, modifying term with Frank, I think that's strange.
0: <laughs> Dick Batchelor, Democratic political commentator, former Democratic state representative. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it, as always. Thank you very much. And we're also joined, of course, by Frank Torres, Republican political commentator. Frank, great to have you back as well. Anytime. Still to come, advocates say it's a case of when, not if, for Medicaid expansion in Florida. But is the Sunshine State ready for it?
4: It will pass eventually in Florida and everywhere else. Um, There's just too much at stake. Too, Too many people are suffering. That's becoming more and more known. And the economics are so powerful.
0: The case for expanding Medicaid, that's when Intersection returns. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. The Florida legislature is getting closer to passing a budget. Healthcare is the second largest item in the budget. 32 cents out of every dollar the Florida state government spends is on Medicaid. It's the state federal health insurance safety net for low-income Floridians. The pandemic and recent federal incentives have reignited the debate in Florida on whether or not to expand Medicaid. Well, joining us today to discuss Medicaid and healthcare funding in Florida is WMFE health reporter Abe Abirai. Abe, thanks for being here. Thank you. We're also joined by Robin Rudowitz with the Kaiser Family Foundation. Robin, thank you as well. Good to be here. Miriam Harmatz, founder and advocacy director with Florida Health Justice Project. Miriam, thank you as well.
5: Thank
6: you.
0: And Anne Swerlik with the Florida Policy Institute. Anne, thank you too.
5: Glad to be here.
0: Thanks. So let's start with the basics. The Affordable Care Act turned 10 years old this year. Expanding Medicaid was one of the key ways the ACA was expected to expand coverage. Abe, what stopped Florida from expanding Medicaid? So
7: going back kind of at the basics of this, the Affordable Care Act kind of looked at uh, expanding and giving more and more millions of of Americans health insurance, and it did it through two main avenues. It was uh, if you were a uh, lower income, but not extremely low income, then you were able to get subsidies um, and tax credits to buy health insurance through the Affordable Care Act, uh, Healthcare.gov exchanges or state-based exchanges, depending on where you are in the country. And that was for people who were a moderate income. Now, the the original law uh, originally planned to ha- uh, require all states to expand Medicaid up to 100 and. Uh, 33% of the poverty line, and this was to um, expand coverage and give all those individuals, millions of people, coverage through Medicaid, um, regardless of, you know, most Medicaid programs are designed uh, where it's only for pregnant women, is for families, it's for people with disabilities, people who are um, older, and this would have just covered it to everyone um, up to that 133% of the federal poverty line. The, Florida, or the U.S. Supreme Court uh, came out with a ruling when um, they ruled that the Affordable Care Act was constitutional. One of the mandates in there to expand Medicaid was ruled optional. Mm-hmm. And so Florida was one of the states that did not opt to expand Medicaid. It's been debated uh, basically um, every year since then, at some point or another, it's been debated in Florida whether or not uh, we should accept federal money to come back down to expand Medicaid or not, mm-hmm. and it's, sometimes it's come pretty close, but so far uh, it hasn't hasn't come to
0: fruition in Florida. Moving forward to this year, what exactly is being proposed in Florida, and how likely are we to see an expansion of Medicaid?
7: So there are two separate policy things that are being discussed in Florida right now. Uh, the first one is Democrats are again um, trying to uh, convince. The lawmakers in, in the state to allow Medicaid to expand to 133. Uh, percent So this is again the the big one that that uh, we're they're trying to go ahead and get that going through in the in the Florida uh, legislature. That one, um, you know, it's going to be debated, but whether or not it actually goes through, it's kind of up in the air. Uh, the other part, or the other part of this though, is that the House Speaker, Chris Sprouls, has talked about expanding Medicaid uh, for pregnant uh, mothers a year past birth. So one once you give birth, the the currently right now you are covered for 60 days after birth. And this measure would continue that for a full year past birth. So that one um, has a much smaller price tag. Uh, it's a lot more of a narrow expansion, um, but it is something that uh, The House Speaker has has indicated that he's in support of, and and we're still waiting to see what comes out of the the Senate and the governor's office on it as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, Robin Rudowitz with the Kaiser Family Foundation, is Florida in the minority when you look at the number of states that have actually taken up the federal government's offer to expand Medicaid?
6: Um, Yes. Right now, there are 12 states that haven't adopted the Medicaid expansion, included in the Affordable Care Act. um, And... That means there are about 2.2 million people nationally that fall into what we refer to as the coverage gap. So there are people, um, adults, so adults without dependent children, as well as parents that have income above the current Medicaid threshold um, that are not eligible for Medicaid and they can't get subsidies in the marketplace. So essentially, These individuals have no affordable coverage option, and Florida is one of these 12 states that has not um, adopted the Medicaid expansion.
0: Mm -hmm. And one consistent argument that you do hear against expansion, at least in Florida, is that it will cost the state too much money. Have you seen that happen in other states that have followed through and, and picked up the federal government's offer to expand?
6: Um, I think that's a good question um, and it's certainly been part of the debate. I think it's important to understand that under the current Medicaid program, um, st- the financing is shared between states and the federal government and the match rate that the federal government pays is based on the state's um, per capita income. So poorer states have a higher share. With the expansion, um, all states at this point get a 90%. So the federal government pays 90% of the cost of the expansion population, so much higher than any state um, the traditional match rate. So there is much, it still requires 10% share from the federal government. And then there was the American Rescue Plan that was um, uh, just passed, and that includes an additional incentive for states to move forward with the the expansion. So the match rate for the expansion population stays at that 90-10 but states would get an additional five percentage points for their traditional program, which is much larger than the expansion population. So in effect, all states, um, it's a temporary incentive, but during the time of the incentive, all states would see a net fiscal benefit to adopt the expansion. So the new uh, revenue from the federal government would outweigh the new costs for expansion.
0: Medicaid is not the only way to pay for health care, though, right? So what are some of the other ways that Florida pays for health care besides Medicaid?
7: Yeah, that, that's a really important point in Florida. When when you look at the um, – there, there's one of the, the biggest pools of money. It's called the low-income pool. It's $1.5 billion, and, and this uh, is, again – A a shared program between where uh, county governments and state government and the federal government all kind of combine resources and then uh, shift that money around to the state to different priorities and and where that ends up going to a lot of times is to hospitals that treat a heart like a higher priority or higher percentage of um, patients that are on Medicaid and therefore they're they're not as financially viable for a hospital. Uh, can go to uh, federally qualified health centers and different uh, clinics to provide kind of primary care and, and specialty care for for Floridians that don't have insurance. And so what they've, some of the studies have found is that when you look at other states that have expanded Medicaid, um, even though they are paying that 10% on, um, you know, the, the new people that they have coming into the program, uh, a lot of times, that's being offset by the amount of money that they're saving from programs similar to the low-income pool or other other programs uh, for healthcare spending. That you know, maybe you don't have to put so much um, emphasis on you know having uh, receiving facilities for people who are in mental health crisis. If there are more people who already have insurance and then they have a mental health crisis, then it's a little bit easier to get them into some of the existing things. So. There, there's a lot of different ways that, that health care dollars are spent in Florida, but there's um, in, in a lot of the places that when policymakers sort of study it, they find that uh, it ends up being a net positive to the state. They save money in other places.
0: Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the potential for Medicaid expansion in Florida in 2021. And Swirlick with the Florida Policy Institute, I wanted to bring you into this conversation. Now, if Florida were to fully expand Medicaid, how many people would be covered?
5: Well, there's there's been a, a range of projections. Uh, the most recent from the federal government is that there'd be about 1.1 million Floridians that could obtain insurance that way. Um, we currently have about 2.7 million uninsured Floridians, so Medicaid expansion would make a very sizable dent. In, in our uninsured numbers.
0: Is there a cost, you know, that the concern that you hear from opponents is it is actually going to cost the state money? Is that something that you've, you've seen in your analysis?
5: There will be a cost in, in the Medicaid program, but it's more than offset by savings in other um, budget areas, state budget areas, like uh, mental health and, um, or things like we're covering right now a population referred to as the medically needy, um, that's covered by traditional Medicaid right now. And if we did expansion, we could be um, covering thousands of people in that program and getting enhanced federal match for their coverage. So again, that would create savings. And overall, even considering the cost of expansion, um, it's it's projected, that there would be actual savings.
0: Miriam Hamet, um, with the Florida Health Justice Project, you've been looking at this issue for quite some time as well. Um, how positive do you feel about Medicaid expansion this year? Or is it, I mean, does it feel like just a matter of time? Or is this just one of those kind of Sisyphean tasks where it's it's always on the table and there never seems to be an end in sight?
4: That's a great question. Um, I it, it will pass eventually in Florida and everywhere else. Um, there's just um, too much at stake. Too too many people are suffering. That's becoming more and more known, and the economics that Anne just walked through are are so powerful. Um, we looking back in history, and when Medicaid passed in 1965, it took 17 years for every single state to sign on. Um, so I I'm confident, you know, Florida will get there. It's a shrinking pool. Alabama might get it. I mean, really, it'll be like what what Florida and Mississippi and do be you know we have to keep um, uh, doing the education uh, that's required and and the the question for our you know as Ann said, as we speak, it is being debated, and the people who are debating it need to ask, you know um, how many more people are going to suffer and their families? And and die, and especially with COVID, and and um, the exponential increase in suffering that that's brought to a state with so many uninsured, um, and and how many billions of our tax dollars are we going to leave on the table? Um, so that's a question we need to keep posing. Because I think approaching your question, Matt, from you know where you know historically, yes, we will get there. Hopefully sooner rather than later.
0: Mm-hmm. Abe, I want to come back to you for a moment. You alluded to the partial Medicaid expansion that may have a shot of passing this year, at least. Let's talk about that. It would cover women for a year after they give birth. What impact would this have if it passes?
7: Well, when you look at the the overall, uh, you know how how when you look at the overall situation when it comes to maternal mortality, for example, um, the U.S. is you know, dead last in the developed world when it comes to another the, the number of mothers who die within um, a few weeks of, of giving birth.
0: That statistic always staggers me. I, I've, it's it's really hard to wrap your head around the fact that a country with this much wealth and expertise and medical knowledge would rank that low. I, I just wanted to throw that out there.
7: Oh, no. And, and it's six to 700 people a year. And, and when, you, when you look at it, too, uh, Florida has, has been studying this issue because it had really high numbers a few years ago. And so there's a um, committee called the Pregnancy Associated Mortality Review Committee. And they, they, took, they take a look at um, whenever someone um, you know, dies within a year of giving birth, they, they will go through and they uh, accumulate all those records and go through it. And, you know, what they found is there's, you know, 42 people who died in 2018, the last time they, they were able to go through all the, the numbers. It was 42 people who died pro- post-pregnancy, which for Florida puts us uh, right about on, on average with the U.S. at about 15.8 deaths per 100,000 live births. Um, but there's also... A greater uh, group of this, it's about 183 people who died in 2018 that were pregnancy-associated who died within that first year. Uh, and so when, when you look at the uh, broader, that ne- not necessarily, um, you know, was 100% related to the pregnancy. This isn't necessarily someone who died from, you know, an infection or from bleeding or thrown a clot, you know, that was related to the pregnancy. but. Uh, a lot of them, unfortunately, uh, it, it is related to um, overdoses and opioids because that has has spiked so much. Um, so, you know, having access to health insurance for that group of people for a year past um, uh, giving birth is going to open up a lot of opportunities for people to maintain access to care, which has been something that that committee has really focused on trying to get hospitals that you know, when someone is born and the baby is born and the baby um, has ev- evidence that they're going through withdrawals of opioids, that they connect, you know, they, they take all the care for the, for the child and then also try to do as much as they can to connect that uh, mother into a, a social safety net to try and, and um, you know, get them into recovery programs and, and to be able to, to fully function again.
0: Mm-hmm. Miriam Hamitz, um, the Florida Health Justice Project has a series where Floridians are interviewed about their experiences. What are some of the stories from that that have really stood out to you?
4: Well, thank you for that question, Matt. I think um, they all do, and I I know everybody has not enough time and there's too much to read. Um, but just to if if your listeners can look at the Floridahealthstories.org website and, and read some of them. And, and really I'm speaking to the people in, in Tallahassee who are now um, considering this. Um, read their stories because one of the most um, obnoxious, and I, I just I hesitate to use that word. I don't want to call names, but it is such a mean-spirited myth that these are able-bodied people who just want a handout and they should go get their own insurance. And the the stories that are, are shared of who the people are uh, in Florida really spells out why that is such a myth. These are, for the most part, hardworking people who, um, you know, because of our economy, we are basically a tourism, um, construction, construction, uh, uh, based economy, agriculture, don't have insurance through their jobs. And and so, and many are making less than 100% of poverty, so they cannot get a subsidy to buy insurance in the marketplace. And insurance is too expensive. That's the no path to affordable coverage. And so they're shut out, that population. And then there are a lot of people um, whose stories that we've shared um, who are older, and I, I can say that <laughs> as an older person myself. And, when, and again, when you, most of their jobs, many are working and many are not now, because again, the type of work people do in Florida, taking care of older people, taking care of kids, um, they're on their feet. Construction, it's hard and the body breaks down and stuff happens. And then they end up, many of them who's, who have shared their stories with us so they can be known publicly and to elected officials. They can't work. They could, the problem could be fixed if they had insurance, like um, you know, a lot of arthritis related work, the car a, a, a maids who use their hands a lot get carpal tunnel and can't do that work or a construction workers with um, who need a knee replacement. And so they can't return to the workforce until they get it treated. And these are the types of treatments not available at primary care centers. So they have we've lost them to the workforce. They're suffering. And one of the um, painful repeated phrases you hear is, I'm just hanging on until Medicare. And we, I think, again, as an older person, we don't want to be wanting to age faster. Uh, and we are one of the few places, you know, Florida and the other 11 states, really probably on the planet, where a big segment of older um uh, people want to get older faster. They're just waiting till 65.
0: We've been talking about possible expansions to Medicaid, but there are also cuts to Medicaid on the table. Uh, Anne Swirlick, what are some of the most concerning cuts that lawmakers are considering?
5: Well, and let me, I, I do want to make one point before we pivot to the cuts. Sure. And that is while it's wonderful that the legislature is looking at this extension of postpartum coverage for women. Um, make no mistake, it is not Medicaid expansion. Um, the postpartum coverage, these are are women we're covering already when they're pregnant and we would be extending their coverage up to a year, which is, um, terrific. And hopefully the Senate will step up and do this, but, um, it's important to note that those women after a year a substantial number of them are going to fall off the cliff and not be be uninsured and not have coverage. And that's where Medicaid expansion would come in. So we think that, you know, these are two initiatives that very much complement each other. Um, But um, we don't want to lose sight that they're not a substitute for each other. But getting to your, your question about the cuts, um, this is very concerning, especially in a year where you know Congress has appropriated um, billions of of dollars to try to help um, uh, keep people um, keep their coverage, uh, get coverage, health care coverage. Um, at this moment, where you know it's all the more critical. Um, but despite that. There is, are proposals in the Senate. To um, one is to eliminate coverage for young adults, 19 and 20. Um, uh, there's another proposal to cut um, various services for adults, including vision and hearing and podiatric services. These are these are services that are very critical um, for for seniors. Um, because they, often they, they cannot get this coverage under their Medicare benefits and they look to Medicaid to, to pick up that coverage. So, um, you know, the, these are um, troubling cuts and we're still working to to push back on them.
0: Miriam, you had some thoughts about medical debt and, and uh, kind of COVID long haulers, Uh that sort of complicates things a little bit for people who who are on the margins of healthcare coverage, right?
4: Right. And just back to your first question, Matt: who are who are these people? And 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 again, some of the common themes that run through there. Many of them obviously working and wanting to go back to the workforce if they've had to leave because of an untreated condition. But some of the other themes that we're hearing from a lot of people who are willing to share their story are concerns about medical debt. So People who have um, been uninsured and had to get treatment, whether for COVID or another uh, problem, then get a huge amount of debt. Mm -hmm. And so they're reluctant now, as they're struggling with whatever they need to get medically, to go back and get treatment. And that is such a perverse um, problem in a state where we're struggling to get this pandemic under control. People should not be reluctant to get care when they need it. Uh it's you know, Robin had mentioned the literature review, and one of the things that's most striking is health outcomes for people who have coverage. So so that that medical debt piece is is something we wanted to be sure to flag. And then the other issue that everybody in the country is learning more about is long COVID. And that's gonna be again another, again with Florida. Uh, having so many uninsured, think of the, you know, the 2.7 million and 1.1 million we could get covered that are going to need treatment by specialists, treatment you're not going to be able to get at a healthcare center. Um, And so they are going to be left out and many of them unable again to join the workforce if we don't get insurance Medicaid expansion.
0: Uh, and just to kind of wrap things up here, there has also been an effort to get a Medicaid expansion initiative in front of voters in the form of a constitutional amendment in 2022. Is that the ultimate backstop, that voters could actually bypass the Florida legislature altogether?
5: That's right, and that, that's been um, undertaken some of the other states that have recently um, passed Medicaid expansion measures. Um, and that would be a way where um, Floridians could weigh in directly um, on whether this policy change should should occur and we know it's very popular in Florida um, and so that that is another uh, track that is underway.
0: Kind of follow up on that Robin, I wonder what you're seeing in, in the research that the Kaiser Family Foundation has done into kind of alternate ways to get medical expansion done in states where maybe there's a legislature that isn't altogether too keen? Are you seeing a lot of uh, advocates going the route of a constitutional amendment?
6: Well, that's certainly how uh, the most recent states have have adopted expansion. So both Missouri and Oklahoma uh, did pass a ballot measure with a constitutional amendment to move forward with expansion. Um, they are both, um, scheduled to start implementation of that expansion on July 1st and a few other states have adopted other, um, forms of ballot measures. Uh, Medicaid re- expansion remains pretty popular among voters. Um, um, so the ballot measures that have been put before voters have, um, have passed.
0: Mm -hmm. And I guess a counterpoint we should mention to that is there is also legislation in front of lawmakers in Tallahassee this year uh, that would make it harder to get constitutional amendments passed, essentially raising the threshold of voters you need to get a constitutional amendment done. So it's a kind of complicated web, um, all all these laws and the way they intermesh. I want to thank our panelists for joining us, Robin Rudowitz with the Kaiser Family Foundation. Thank you so much for your time.
6: Um, No problem. It was great to be here.
0: I'm also joined by Ann Swerlock with the Florida Policy Institute. and thank you as well. Thank you. Miriam Harmets, founder and advocacy director with Florida Health Justice Project. Miriam, thanks so much to you as well.
4: And thank you for this important uh, panel. And the timing is perfect. And one last point, if people want to know what to do, go, there's a big coalition. It's at healthcare4fl.org. So go there now and you can follow um, what's happening today in the legislature and 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 make your voice, share your, your story and con- contact your elected officials.
0: And of course, Abe Abariah, our healthcare reporter. Abe, thanks as always. Thank you. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for today's show from Clarissa Moon and Abe Abariah. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived shows on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Follow the work of the WMFE News Team on Facebook or at WMFE Orlando on Twitter. Thanks for listening.